welcome to November's After Dark. I'm Gemma. And I'm Emily. This time we are taking a bit of a whistle-stop tour through the history of battlefield medicine. And in true Saga's fashion, we're going to look at some of the female battlefield medics in history. Okay, so whereabouts are we starting? Well, it's been said that the greatest advancements in medicine have been made during wars, and some argue that without war, surgery may not, may not have ever existed. For as long as humans are around the earth, they've been finding new ways to kill one another, and the early humans didn't have doctors. They had what we believe today to be medicine men, which included a bit of a mix of medicine and spiritual healing, something that continues throughout history. Examples of their medicine skills include setting broken bones in clay and they covered lacerations with animal fat and then bound them in animal skin to heal them. The ancient Egyptians had a nominal concept of basic battlefield medicine and practices that combined the application of soothing herbs with religious requirements in order to patch up the wounded as best that they could and get them off fighting again. We have evidence of their methods as you know they like to helpfully write things down and a papyrus dated to be from about 1650 BCE is the oldest known medical text that we have. And it records 48 types of wounds and fractures along with their treatments. What kind of things did their treatments include? Well, treatments included things like honey, which while we may think is a little bit odd, is full of so much sugar that it actually stops bacteria from growing. The high sugar content draws water out of the injured tissue and stops them from swelling. Fresh meat was used to control clotting and willow leaves were used to control inflammation. And willow contains salicylic acid, which is the main ingredient of aspirin. The water lily plant was also applied to wounds and abrasions as it contains a pain relieving property. And while on the subject of pain relief, the Egyptians physicians were acquainted with the anesthetic properties of opium. Nothing like a little bit of opium to stop you feeling pain. Well, exactly. Honey is still used like medicinally now, isn't it? Yeah. Like especially like manuka honey and stuff. Yeah, it's been proved to really be quite effective. I mean, when we were looking at things we could quickly give Theo when he had a really sore throat, one of the first things that came up was honey. Because obviously mm. it suits and it's probably better than giving him a cough medicine. And yeah, because yeah. it kind of coats your throat as well. Yeah. Lots of the natural remedies we're kind of coming back to now. And these are the kind of remedies that ancient civilizations would have used yeah it's funny isn't it like we, we almost think of them as backwards but so many things that they found and used are used they like there uh, certain illnesses leeches are still used yeah okay so where are we looking next well if we move forward in time we look to the greeks and the romans now hippocrates who was a renowned greek physician is credited with the famous quote he who desires to practice surgery must go to war. With this, he implied that it was only during warfare that a physician could truly learn his art. And one passage of Homer's Iliad states, a physician is worth more than several other men put together for he can cut out arrows and spread healing herbs. The Greeks cleansed wounds with a concoction assembled from wine and vinegar. A Greek wine contained polyphones, which are a bactericide, which is 33 times more powerful than the phenols that Joseph Lister would then use in 1865. Furthermore, Alexander the Great's army used tourniquets made of brass and leather to staunch wounds, but they didn't have the knowledge to permanently stop the bleeding once the tourniquet was removed. 
However, while Alexander openly acknowledged the benefits of having trained physicians with the army, he only had seven to ten to an army of about 40,000. And when the Roman armies defeated the Greeks, the Roman medical services improved on the Greek version by incorporating trained physicians and establishing field hospitals. I mean, you know, they really like their methods. But wait, we now know ancient Rome doesn't exist thanks to lots of people on TikTok. Honestly. I mean, that's <laughs> a whole new conspiracy theory. But I guess it makes sense. If you're like a nation that's built around battle, you need to look after your, your soldiers. So it makes sense that you'd invest in battlefield medicine. Yeah. And seven for 40,000 is about the same as the Conservatives' current plan for the NHS. Mm, yeah. But they'd all be private. Uh, but it was fine because we could all go to Pepper Pigland afterwards. Yeah. Anyway, let's not start that because mm. I could have a whole rant on that. Now, the Romans, being the warrior nation that we know them to be, had legions that employed organised medical units in their armies. We know from archaeological evidence and written evidence that the most frequent injuries were flesh wounds that were caused by swords, daggers, arrows and lances. And projectile weapons were especially difficult to remove from the body. And this is because arrows had barbs on them so that you couldn't pull them out without further tearing the tissue. And it was a Roman surgeon, Celsus, who wrote about how to deal with the issues like this, such as removing arrowheads. <clears throat> and what he did was use an instrument that was almost like a small half tube that would be manipulated around the arrowhead so that the barbs wouldn't do more damage on the way out. So it kind of captured the arrowhead within it and then you pull the whole thing out. And the Romans didn't just have Celsus. Galen was the famous surgeon to the gladiators, and he was a skilled surgeon. He used flax or wool to make sutures to stitch wounds up, and sometimes used pins around the edges of the wound fixed by thread. And he was meticulous in his treatment of wounds and knew that it was important to keep them clean. And he used wine as an antiseptic, much like the Greeks. And he used sponge soaked in turpentine, which he squeezed over the wounds, um, also to help prevent infection. Can you tell us like a little bit more about him? I can give you a very brief overview. So he's born in 129 uh, CE in what we now know today as Turkey. When he was 16, he changed his career to that of medicine. His father was an architect, so he was starting to study that and decided to change over. And he studied medicine in modern day Izmir in Turkey. And then finally at Alexandria in Egypt, which was at the time the greatest medical center of the ancient world. After more than a decade of study, he returned in 157 CE to Pergamon, where he served as a chief physician to the troops of gladiators maintained by the high priest of Asia. In 162 CE, he moved to Rome, and there he quickly rose in the medical profession owing to his public demonstrations of anatomy and his, his success with rich and influential patients whom other doctors had pronounced incurable his enormous learning and the rhetorical skills he displayed in public debates. And between 168 and 169 CE, he was called by the joint emperors Lucius Versus and Marcus Aurelius to accompany them on a military campaign in Northern Italy. And after Versus' sudden death in 169, Galen returned to Rome where he served the other emperor and later emperors uh, Commodus and Septimus Severus as a physician. Certainly a lot of skill. 
also a big career change. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how he kind of went from, I'm going to follow my father's footsteps to medicine. But also he got to study at Alexandra, which would have it's been... It's pretty impressive. Yeah, it would have been a big deal. Obviously, we know it, that it had the biggest library in the world, so it was the raven place to go. <laughs> Definitely. It, it's clever, though, like, you think how many like using thread as sutures and, and things we tend to think of that as like a modern invention but, but I guess it makes sense that they figured out a way of stopping it given gladiators got like cut with swords and things yeah and especially it, it's one thing to um stitch up a wound but you have to know how to keep infection out of it obviously they probably wouldn't have known it as an infection in the same way that we do but yeah, keeping anything that was going to make the wound not heal or make the patient more sick was also really important. Yeah, and, and like gladiators were quite a big investment financially. Definitely. So it makes sense that they had trained medical professionals. Yeah. And you'd want them to be good, not kind of a whack, not a whack job. Quack. Quack, there we go. Nice. I mean, you wouldn't want a quack that was a whack job. <laughs> now, they didn't just use wine to stop bacteria. They also had to perform surgeries on the battlefield. So stab wounds to the abdomen were noted to be the most common injury. And often, this is going to really gross you out, I'm sorry, often intestines would spill out. And when this happened, the surgeon would have to first examine them for injury. That's still something that you have to do today before carefully putting them back and then stitching the soldier back up and it's actually a remarkable surgery when you consider what it actually entailed celsus recorded over 100 successful abdominal surgeries and in the seventh book of pliny's natural history which was published in 77 ce the author refers to marcus sergius silas ferris a roman general and politician who lived from 240 to 187 bce and he was according to pliny the first roman soldier to wear a prosthetic limb, his right hand having been sliced off in a sword fight. Not only did he live to tell the tale, but he participated in many other battles, sustaining another 23 injuries to his extremities, and his hand, or his new hand, was made from iron and was capable of holding a shield and splitting enemy schools with remarkable dexterity. Now, you're probably wondering where the women come into battlefield medicine, and the answer is not quite yet. Battlefield medicine was an exclusively male domain at the time, and the Roman medical officer was often known as a medicus and was normally in charge of Greek or Greek-trained medical personnel. In the town of Xantine, or Vatera to the Romans in Germany, the remains of what is thought to be a Roman hospital was discovered, complete with wards, rooms full of medical instruments, surgical suites, and possibly mortuaries. It was originally built to serve the army, and fun fact, it's been worked out that the care given to a Roman soldier was in fact almost equivalent to that of a soldier in World War One. Now, the first nursing school was founded in India in about 250 BCE. Writings at the time indicate that only men were considered, quote, pure enough to become nurses. And this was the same in Rome, where the nosocomi were men providing nursing care. And nursing only became more common in Europe during the Middle Ages, mainly due to the Catholic Church. So St. Benedict, who founded the Benedictines monks order, Although his twin sister, St. Scholastica, 
went on to establish a similar monastic-based community for women. And when Charlemagne became Holy Roman Emperor in 800 CE, he undertook to restore and equip the hospitals of his domain with all the latest medical equipment. And he also demanded that hospitals be attached to every cathedral and monastery within Europe. Probably unsurprisingly, their services were only available to the genuinely pious, heathers and worshippers of other religions weren't welcome. Military, religious and lay orders of men, including the Knights Hospitallers, Teutonic Knights, Knights of St. Lazarus and the Hospital Brothers of St. Anthony all provided nursing care during the Middle Ages. So during the medieval period, the care of a soldier received depended entirely on the status of the individual and the treatment on and off the battlefield often fell to the clergy where stringent religious doctrine often impeded the quality of care that they received. Add to that the fact that we start to see weapons powered by gunpowder, which produce much greater tissue damage. I mean, you had cannonballs, musket balls, shrapnel wounds. Surgeons never had to deal with any of this before. And with these types of wounds, infection can really easily spread as the wound creates dead tissue that's just ripe for bacteria. And in order to deal with it, um, war surgeons have often now been called butchers. Medieval surgeons didn't know what caused infection and often thought it was a poison from the gunpowder. They believed that it required drastic measures to get rid of it. And that was by using boiling oil because they believed that was the only way to neutralize gunpowder poison. And fun fact for you, slime of a snail was a medieval remedy for burns and it really did help to reduce blistering and ease pain because it contains antioxidants, antiseptic, anesthetic, anti-irritant, anti-inflammatory, antibiotic and antiviral properties, as well as collagen and elastin, which are vital for skin repair. Now, on the cusp of the Middle Ages, but I'm going to include him here, French surgeon Ambrose Paré ran out of oil during a battle in 1537, and he was forced to improvise with a mix of egg yolk, rose oil and turpentine. And it turned out that his patient was in better condition than those that he treated with oil. There was hardly any inflammation or swelling and the patient had got some good rest in comparison to other patients. His conclusion, wounds heal better with simple cleaning. I can't imagine why having scalding hot oil poured on a, a shrapnel wound would cause you more pain. Mm, yeah. I mean, the thing about snail slime makes sense. Yeah, I didn't realise it had that much within it. No, but it's quite a popular ingredient in face creams, isn't it? For, mm, for the anti-aging. Yeah. Also, it's weird how nursing's gone from being seen as a, a man's career to today, if you say nurse, people instantly think of women. Weird how so, it changed around. So do you have any more on Paris? I do. Uh, again, we're going to go really quickly through his life. So he was a French physician, one of the most notable surgeons of the European Renaissance and regarded by some medical historians as the father of modern surgery. He was taught anatomy and surgery and in 1537 was employed as an army surgeon. By 1552, he'd gained such popularity that he became surgeon to the king. They served four French monarchs, Henry II, Francis II, Charles IX, and Henry III. Now, when you cut into a person, there's lots of blood loss, and that has to be stopped. Now, medieval surgeons used hot irons to do this, but as well as causing pain, it causes dead tissue, and that ups the risk of infection. Now, Ambrose Paré realized this and went back to long forgotten Roman methods of tying blood vessels. And this is still used today. And um, 
ligatures are used on substantial vessels that need to be closed. And unlike many surgeons of this time, he resorted to surgery only when he found it was absolutely necessary to do. He was one of the first surgeons to discard the practice of castrated patients who required surgery for a hernia. He introduced the implantation of teeth, artificial limbs and artificial eyes made of gold or silver. He invented lots of scientific instruments and popularized the use of the truss for a hernia and was the first to suggest syphilis as a cause of aneurysm, swelling of the blood vessels. In fact, William Harvey's observation on blood circulation, Sir Christopher Wren's intravenous administrations of medicine, and Andreas Vesalius's work on human anatomy all made reference to Paré. So he was kind of important then? Yeah, very important. And to think the reason that he's probably most remembered or kind of thrown into the spotlight a little bit is because he didn't have boiling oil. Yeah, like an interesting quirk of fate, really. William Harvey, he's the one who worked out that blood is pumped by the heart and how it works. I might be wrong, but I vaguely remember reading about him and him being, he was like watching water get pumped through a well or something. He was like, oh, that's how it works. Love those little quirks. And I'm like, oh, hang on. That makes sense. So do you have any more about the medieval period to tell us? Yes. I mean, it's taken some time, but finally we have reached the point where we get women into the medical field. And it's one for you, Gemma. It's the Sisters of Begwine. So before women were allowed to officially serve as nurses, their roles as caregivers were very stereotypical, the loving wives or asexual nuns. They weren't accepted as, quote, proper health workers until at least the mid-18th century, except for the Sisters of Begoin. Now, they didn't provide battlefield nursing. They would most certainly have tended to crusader knights on their way back from the Holy Land. Now, saying that, in 1302, they found themselves directly in the firing line after the Battle of the Golden Spurs, while retreating French or Burgundian knights discovered wounded Flemish soldiers being treated at a local Begoinage. The place was levelled and many of the wounded, including some of the sisters, were murdered. Despite this, the sisters survived wars, crusades, plagues and famines. The reason the sisters uh, were founded was due to a rise in medicant monastic orders in the 12th and 13th centuries, which led to a gender imbalance in Northern Europe. So you have to remember in Europe, it worked on the idea of a feudal system, which defined strict rules for class and gender, which left women with very few options. I mean, they could live under the father's roof until they were betrothed, then with the husband until widowed, and then perhaps with their children. Failing that, they could live as a spinster, which also meant accusations of witchcraft were, you know, on the horizon. Or they could take vows and become a nun. But the issue was that there were so many unmarried, widowed, or abandoned women in Northern Europe that religious orders were oversubscribed. One group of women in Belgium, with no intention of falling into the feudal line, got together and created a space for themselves. It was an organisation for unmarried women who were willing to work hard and live a pious life. They've been described by some as a women's liberation movement. Members led a communal lifestyle dedicating themselves to God, prayer, nursing and social care, but they avoided taking vows or having connection with the Catholic Church's hierarchy. The biggest difference between these nuns and others was that the Burgoynes could leave the community to marry without any repercussions. Of course, this meant that they weren't always in the church's good graces. In 1311, the Council of Vienne issued a decree that 
accused the sisters of being anti-Normanon, heretics of the free spirit, and set into motion decades of persecution that eradicated them. Survivors had their property confiscated and they were forced to marry. They were saved when Pope John the 22nd issued the papal bull Ratio Rector, which said the sisters would be permitted to, quote, pursue their life without diminution of property or rights. The sisters remained active until the Reformation, but the Begroins in Belgium had a bit of a revival in the 17th century. In 1969, there were still 11 Begroinages in Belgium and two in Holland. I mean, we love some badass nuns. True, and I know that you love them. I do. It's interesting that the same council they were discussed at is like the same one that dealt with the Knights Templar. All the heretics together. Heretics, like a a, a term of just anyone who's slightly against, slightly different against what the church believes. Yeah. But you think they'd be happy that these people are, that these women are taking care of people. But of course they were women. They were women and they weren't doing it in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, which was the issue. I like the fact I well I mean I never realized that you couldn't you couldn't like just leave being a nun which sounds silly when I now say it out loud but I didn't realize it no. would be like one day do you know no actually do I think this is for me it, it, it does seem like something you should be able to say actually no but because you take vows you have that's why there's like different periods of being a nun so if you've seen sister act you know the really quiet one wears a different outfit to the other nuns? Yes. That's because she's not taken her full vows yet. It's just like a pop culture way of doing it. But, I mean, the link between monastic orders and medicine, you know, like St Thomas Hospital and places like that, and monasteries often would often give over land to grow plants that were used medicinally. Mm-hmm. And because they were wealthy, they had the space where they could do that. Because when you... You think most people who were growing stuff in their gardens were doing so to eat and to support themselves? Yeah. It was only the wealthy that had space to grow things for other reasons. Yeah. Gardening didn't come about until much later, until after the the English Civil Wars, because that kind of ended warring in Britain. So people didn't need to grow their food because obviously they can import it. And so that's when gardening starts to become popular which is a whole different tangent, and I apologise. I just get very excited about monasticism and medicine. And Right, now we're going to skip quite a lot, and we're going to go forward in history to America, introducing the first female nurses. So in the 18th century, women are a visible part of any army encampment. They were the wives of soldiers who trailed along having nowhere else to go. Other women offered services for, for pay as cooks, washerwomen, nurses, prostitutes, or seamstresses. But the introduction of the female nurse to formally accompany the Continental Army of 1765 was due to Washington responding to a plea by General Horatio Gates that, quote, the sick suffer much for want of a good female nurse. Congress authorised one nurse for every 10 patients and one matron for every 10 nurses, allowing a salary of $2 per month for the nurse and $4 for the matron. Serving as a nurse in the Continental Army was a precarious choice of vocation. Although they received regular pay and job security, you know, was good for them, nursing in the army was potentially life-threatening. 
exposure to diseases such as smallpox and camp fevers could easily cause early death and it wasn't generally regarded as a respectable profession for ladies but they were thought to be extremely helpful and according to legend Lydia Derrick a nurse in the army single-handedly saved the lives of George Washington and his army on the 2nd of December 1777 when she overheard the British planning a surprise attack the following day. I mean I feel as British people we should be upset by that but that's kind of cool. Yeah. It's still not seen as like a an everyday job for a woman to have, like a not respectable job. I mean, you should still be at home having your children kind of thing. But yeah, it was a it was a it was a paid position at least, you know. It was a it was a job. Yeah. Which is, you know, kind of as it's paid, it suggests that there was a certain level of care expected and required. Yeah. And probably a certain skill set as well. Yeah, and some training and sharing of knowledge I guess is a better term for it Mm -hmm. so where are we jumping forward to next Uh, next up is the Napoleonic Wars and these happened between 1803 and 1815 so by the Napoleonic Wars we see bigger armies who fought gun-dominated wars battlefield medicine wasn't really seen for the lower classes during the early side of the Napoleonic Wars and the wounded would often be left where they fell. Lower classes getting injured wasn't seen as a big issue to the higher-ups. I mean, they would just be left in the hands of medics that would arrive days after the end of the battle. Um, They probably weren't the best trained medics. During Napoleon's Russian campaign, thousands of soldiers were left to die. But as the numbers of the injured and dead increased, it started to become a bit of an issue, and the need for change became apparent. So a new scheme was devised by French surgeon Dominique Jean Larray, reaching patients and their evacuation was the biggest issue that he faced. And in order to help with this, he designed and built a mobile medical unit that he called the Flying Ambulance. It was manned by stretcher bearers and it provided urgent treatment for quick evacuation. Now, fun fact, Larray liked his men to swear and protest on the operating table because it meant that pain and infection hadn't left them indifferent to the knife cutting them. I mean, that's a good marker to know Mm -hmm. how your patient's doing. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about him? I can. So he was born July the 8th, 1766 in Bodin and France. He was a French military surgeon in the service of Napoleon, and he introduced field hospitals, ambulance service, and first aid practices to the battlefield. He began his medical studies with his uncle in Toulouse, and in 1787, he travelled to North America. In 1792, he was attached to the Army of the North and eventually became principal surgeon of the French army and thereafter followed Napoleon in almost all of his campaigns, Egypt, Italy, Germany, Austria, Russia, and finally at Waterloo. And Napoleon made him a baron of the empire. Now, after the fall of Napoleon, it was Lorraine's medical reputation that saved him and he was named a member of the Academy for Medicine at its founding in 1820. But while the very had this idea for an ambulance, they still didn't have modest, modern medicine as we imagine it now. Often limbs had to be removed and there was no anaesthetics. In fact, often men had to be held down and they would drift in and out of consciousness as it was happening. I mean, pain's enough to kill someone, so they had to be really, really quick. And during just one campaign, he performed 200 amputations in a day. And on average, that's one every 7.2 minutes. And he claimed that he could remove a leg in less than two minutes. But I mean, that's only the cutting 
bit, not the bit that comes after, like the stitching them back together. At the time, for most injured limbs, you were looking at an amputation for it. Yeah, especially like cannonball injuries and stuff. I know a lot of um, naval medics did a lot of amputations like during the Battle of Waterloo and stuff because of flying, like the wood flying up and going through people's arms and stuff. It was quite interesting when I was looking at Napoleonic Wars because it did go towards like Waterloo and they really compared the English versus the French. And English medicine was like still really quite barbaric in, in that way of, oh, you've been slightly injured, cut it off. Whereas mm. the French surgeons would try and save as much as possible without needing to do amputations. It just reminded me of, um, his name was Robert Liston. He was a doctor and he was known as like the fastest doctor around for amputations. Mm-hmm. Apparently he could perform a, a leg amputation in 28 seconds. But one time he killed three people during an amputation. So the patient, his assistant, because he cut two of his fingers off at the same time. And then as he came back up, his knife caught like a, an onlooker and the person died from a heart attack. So the assistant and the patient later died of gangrene and one person died at the time of, of a heart attack because he thought he'd like cut him with the same knife. So he's the only doctor with a 300% mortality rate. I mean, that's quite impressive. Yeah. So it popped up on my on something I was looking at the other day and I was like, oh, I meant to include it in this because I thought it was quite interesting. It's both gory and interesting. It's, it, it's your wheelhouse. It is. Also, if you're going to fail, fail spectacularly. Definitely. Make it one for the history books. Because when we think about like amputation, you just think of them slicing it off, but they didn't. They had to like leave extra skin, didn't they? So they could bring it round and su- yeah. sew it up. She says, try not to gag. You look like you really enjoying this conversation. I'm just saying there's more skill to it than sometimes Lop- pop culture would lead you to believe. Lopping a limb off. I think sometimes like with popular culture, because they, they obviously just show it like, oh, they just got a knife and cut straight through and then the person was fine, takes away from the skill these people had mm-hmm. before they had everything we have now. Yeah. Should we, should we change the topic and move on? Yes, please. Where are we looking next? Okay. The Crimean War is up next. So if I say the Crimean War and nurses, the first person that you're more than likely to think of is Florence Nightingale. And now, while she was a big name at the time, Another well-known woman was Mother Seacole, and she achieved celebrity status among the Victorian British public. In fact, some historians even argue that her contribution to the health and welfare of soldiers in the Crimea far exceeds that of Florence Nightingale. See, she would have been my first thought, but that could just be because she was in Doctor Who the other week. Possibly. Okay, tell us about Mary then. Okay, so Mary was born in Kingston, Jamaica, in 1805, and she was christened Mary Jane Grant, Her father, James, was a Scottish officer posted in Jamaica, and her mother, also named Mary, was known at the time as a Creole, which is to say that she was a mix of European and Black descent, something that would cause her daughter some issues further on in life. Mary Senior was a skillful exponent of traditional Jamaican herbal remedies and medicine, and she ran Blundell Hall at a hotel in Kingston where she cared for invalid soldiers and their wives. Now, the younger Mary married Englishman Edwin Horatio Hamilton Seacole on November 10th, 1836. He was a naval officer and reputedly the illegitimate son of Horatio Nelson and his mistress, Lady Hamilton, 
but Mary's will contradicted this claim, saying that he was in fact the quote godson of Nelson. But I mean, he was an adopted son, just saying. Edwin died in 1844 and Mary never remarried. Instead, she decided to dedicate herself to managing her mother's hotel. She treated victims in the 1850 cholera epidemic and her treatments proved handy for her later on in life. During her lifetime, she traveled extensively and was reputed to have been a fiercely loyal patriot and made a number of journeys to the UK. But unfortunately, her loyalty to her country wasn't always reciprocated. It was during a visit to the UK that she heard about the Crimean War and she was moved by the distressing newspaper articles and she made an application to the War Office. British medical authorities and the Army Medical Department and the Secretary of War to be allowed to go to the Crimea, but she was refused time and time again. Eventually, it was through Thomas Day, a relative of her husband, that she got a chance. The pair established a limited company um, known as the Seacole and Day, and on the 27th of January 1855, she secured passage to Constantinople on board the Dutch ship Hollander, armed with a letter of recommendation. She met and had a brief chat with Florence Nightingale about what she wanted to do for the soldiers. And when she arrived in the Crimea, she set up a hotel, which others referred to as Mrs. Seacole's Hut. And the first floor was a restaurant and the second floor was requisitioned as a treatment area, much like a field hospital. And she financed her operation by selling supplies, serving meals and alcohol, and she used the profits to treat the injured. And this was a big ask for any one person to do, add on to the fact that she was 50 years old at the time. Because she wasn't officially attached to any organisation, she had complete freedom of movement. And William Howard Russell, a special correspondent of the Times, wrote in 1856. In the hour of their own list, these men have found a kind and successful physician who doctors and cures all manner of men with extraordinary success. She's always in attendance near the battlefield to aid the wounded and, uh, and has earned many a poor fellow's blessing. She was even well known for wearing really bright colours when she went out on the battlefield to tend to the wounded to make sure that people knew that she was there. In 1857, she returned to London suffering ill health and the press advertised her plight and many people donated to a fund for her. Even Florence Nightingale, who was publicly somewhat critical of her, was alleged to have secretly contributed to the fund. Mary then went on to write her autobiography, which was called The Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands, which was reprinted by Penguin Classics in 2005. And she died following a cerebral hemorrhage in London on the 14th of May, 1881. And today she has a statue on the grounds of St. Thomas Hospital in London. She is amazing, though, Mary Seacole. It's so sad that she's kind of overshadowed and not as well known when she should be. Yeah. She was able to do so much more because she wasn't attached to anyone, but she wanted to be attached. That was the thing, and they wouldn't let her. So she very much went, fine, I'll do it myself. I mean, sometimes you just have to circumvent the government because they're not great. It's funny how many women's stories start with that, though, isn't it? Like, well, she tried to do things the right way, like with government support. The government said no, so she went and did it herself, did a much better job. Just saying. I mean, you know, it's not like she didn't know what she was going to do. She had a set plan. She's like, right, I'm going to open up a restaurant and by selling everything there, I'll have everything that I need to do, what I need to do upstairs. I wonder how much race came into it. I mean, she did have to deal with a lot. On one of the boat crossings to England, an American commented on her skin, but she did clap back at him about it. 
she wasn't shy to clap back. Just it amazes me that anyone can care about the colour of somebody's skin, like about anything, but especially when that person's trying to help and save lives. Yeah. Like even today you get it, don't you? People go into the hospital and they're like, oh, I, I only want a white doctor, I only want a white nurse. Why? Other than fact you're a racist. So where are we off to next? Next up is the American Civil War, which was 1861 to 1865. So on average, during the years of the American Civil War, 504 men died each day. At the Battle of Gettysburg, there was approximately 50,000 casualties in just three days. New bullets made of soft lead would deform on impact and have been described as like taking a sledgehammer to the bone. Bullets to the head were most often fatal. If one went in the limb, then it most likely had to be removed because of the amount of damage it created. And the battlefield hospitals were said to be like butchers because the sheer amount of amputations that were happening. Out of the 11,000 Union surgeons, only 500 had performed surgery before, so they were highly inexperienced. Some surgeons operated for up to 72 hours straight with very few breaks after Gettysburg. Not only this, but reports from the surgeons at the time state how unclean the hospitals were. They wore blood and pus soaked coats, and if they dropped an instrument, they just rinsed it in some water and then used it anyway. On the plus side, surgeons did have anesthesia in the form of chloroform and ester, which had recently been discovered. Now, medics were organised into an efficient medical corps on the union side of things, um, and it was a brainchild of Jonathan Letterman, who trained his team to retrieve, evacuate, and treat in as short a time as possible. The patients that were retrieved were receiving good care within 24 hours, which, while it sounds like a really long time, was actually really good for that period. After Gettysburg, it said that the wounded were back in the field hospitals by the end of the, the same day that they were injured. I mean, they do not sound like places you wanted to be. No. I know this might not be something you know the answer to, but if they were chopping off limbs at that rate, mm-hmm. how were they disposing of them? Were they just like in a pile somewhere rotting? I think so. Just like out the back. Uh, I really wish I hadn't asked. Maybe in a little bonfire. I mean, I, I mean, that's what they do today, isn't it? They incinerate them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so do you have anything more to tell us about Jonathan Letterman? Yeah, very quick tour through Jonathan Letterman's life. He was known as the father of modern battlefield medicine. And his work saved thousands of soldiers from dying horrible, horrible deaths on the battlefield. He was born in Pennsylvania on December the 11th, 1824. And his father was a surgeon and Letterman followed in his footsteps, graduating from Jefferson Medical College in 1849 and assuming the rank of assistant surgeon in the Army Medical Department the same year. From 1849 until 1861, Letterman served on various military campaigns against Native American tribes in Florida, Minnesota, New Mexico, and California. And with the beginning of the Civil War in 1861, he was assigned to the Army of the Potomac and was eventually named Medical Director of the entire Army in June of 1862, with the rank of Major. After it took over a week to remove the wounded from the battlefield at 2nd Manassas, Letterman was given free range by General George McKellen to do whatever was needed to revamp the poor medical services that the men received in the field. And he developed an evacuation system that consisted of three stations. First was a field dressing station, which was located on or next to the battlefield, where medical personnel would apply the initial dressings and tourniquets to wounds. 
The second was a field hospital, which was cl located close to the battlefield, usually in homes or barns where emergency surgery would be performed and additional treatment given. And the third was a large hospital located away from the battlefield, providing facilities for long-term treatment of patients. With Letterman's work on the Army Medical Corps completed and after serving a brief period as an inspector of hospitals, he resigned from the Army in December of 1864 and he moved to San Francisco where he served as a coroner between 1867 and 1872 and he also published his memoirs. In 1872, after the death of his wife, he became severely depressed and several illnesses followed and on March the 15th, he then passed away. Even though the wounded were being taken back to the field hospital, some would be too injured to treat and would have to be left to die. Something that still happens in some respects today. I mean, in civilian situations, everyone's treated. But in battlefield med medicine, you have to go on survival rates and it's literally a split second decision. And battlefield medics have to go through lots of training for that now. It's really interesting if you kind of look into that. They have to go on the survival rates. They're the first people that get treated. I'm sure that does wonders for their medical health afterwards. Uh-huh, yeah. It's funny, this idea of like having the different hospitals seems like such common sense now, but was a big thing. Yeah, before everyone was kind of just piled in together, which would be no help. You'd be overrun really quickly. Yeah, especially in such a big conflict. So I know we've talked, touched on this a little bit before, but but women had a role in the in the American Civil War. Do you have some for us to look at? So during the war, Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women, worked for a very short time as a nurse in one of the field hospitals. On the 11th of December 1862, she went to the Union Hospital in, in Georgetown to volunteer her services and later related her experiences in her book Hospital Sketches which tells the story of a bedside army nurse. During her service, she would have been required to assist with tor torturous surgical procedures, tending unsightly wounds and to alleviate the suffering of those who were dying. She contracted typhoid pneumonia in January of 1863 and her condition was regarded as being so serious that she was sent back home. She also appeared to display symptoms of PTSD the effects of being treated by calomel ruined her health and she spent the remaining years of her life blighted by recurrent pain, weakness and neurological problems. Now, retrospectively, she didn't really have a particularly large contribution to the war effort. She was only involved for about six weeks. But real credit for war involvement should go to her family. So the Alcott family maintained a strong humanitarian stance throughout even providing a safe house for the Underground Railroad. I mean, I had no idea, even if she only served for six weeks, I had no idea None. That, that she'd been involved. No, none at all. Okay, who's next? So while Alcott was um, serving her country, she was under the instruction of Dorothea Lind Dix, and she's already been widely acknowledged among the medical community of the day as both crusader and reformer, despite the fact that she lacked medical experience or qualifications. And it was her dedication to duty that was beyond reproach. After the outbreak of hostilities, Dix effectively convinced cynical military officials that women were perfectly capable of nursing. And on this basis, she personally recruited 2000 women and formed the first army nursing corps. The women that volunteered were, for the vast majority, unqualified and totally inexperienced. 
and Dix was often at loggerheads with military officials, and when it suited her, she just blatantly ignored them. She has on occasion been described a little bit tyrannical, and she earned the nickname Dragon Dix, but she took good care of the nurses who laboured in terrible conditions. In fact, she was nearly 60 at the time of her appointment and not in the best of health, suffering through malaria, pulmonary weakness and long punishing hours of work. After the Battle of Bull Run in Jul- on July the 21st, 1861, Dix's hospitals couldn't accommodate all the sick and wounded soldiers and so she quickly requisitioned more buildings and converted them into hospitals. When she discovered that Union troops didn't have sufficient ambulances, she purchased one with her own money. She also did her her best to amend the gender pay imbalance. Male nurses were paid $20.50 a month and received rations, clothing and housing. But all of Dix's nurses were unpaid volunteers. When this was discovered, there was unrest and she realised that unless something was done, she was going to lose many of her nurses. So she applied to the government and they agreed to provide female nurses with food, transportation and housing and 40 cents a day. In fact, This allowed nursing numbers to actually increase. At the end of the war, she was asked by Secretary of War Edwin N. Stanton what kind of title or gift she'd like to receive from a grateful nation. Her only request was to be given the flag of her country, but she never actually expected to get that. But on December 3rd, 1866, she received a letter which said, in token and acknowledgement of the inestimable services rendered by Miss Dorothea L. Dix, for the care, succor, and relief of the sick and wounded soldiers of the US on, ba- on the battlefield, in camps and hospitals during the recent war, and of her benevolent and diligent labours and devoted efforts to whatever might contribute to their effort to their com- welfare, it is ordered that a stand of arms of the US national colours be presented to Miss Dix. Her contribution to the war effort pales by comparison to the reforms that she actually achieved concerning the improvement of care of the mentally ill in America. Thanks to her, the first insane sounds were created. And on the 17th of July, 1887, she passed away. I mean, tyrant tendencies aside, she's kind of impressive. Yeah, and considering she had no medical training, she just knew what needed to be done and did it. Also, another woman that just ignored the government and got yeah. stuff done. Yeah, pretty much. I'm seeing a pattern here. Yeah. Where are we looking next? So next up is the First World War. So earlier I mentioned that the treatment um, that Roman soldiers received was the same as soldiers in the First World War. So I wanted to talk about some of the women that served as nurses during the First World War. There was, of course, Edith Cavill, who Gemma's written about before, and we'll pop a link to her post in the description box if you want to know a bit more about her. Now, as a proud Yorkshire woman myself, I, of course, had to pick a fellow Yorkshire woman to talk about and that woman was Nellie Spindler. So she was the first born child of George and Elizabeth. She was born in Wakefield in West Yorkshire in 1891. Her father was a sergeant in the police force and by 1911 her father had a reputation for excellent first aid skills and had risen to the rank of inspector and Nellie had trained as a nurse at Township Infirmary in Leeds. She completed her training in 1915 and it's possible that her Catholic faith and the example of public service from her father may have influenced her life and career. Now, on August the 1st, 1914, Germany declared war on France and not long after, Britain also stepped in. While lots of men were ready to step up and join the army in the north, the response to the war was initially more subdued. It was the industrial heart of the British Empire, home to the coal mines, steelworks, docksides and the mills. 
and it was difficult to persuade the men here that this was going to be, quote, all over by Christmas. Where have we heard that before? The first few months of the war were so damaging to the British army that eventually conscription was brought in. There was also a call for young women who were needed as nurses, and Nellie was one such woman who joined Queen Alexandria's Imperial Military Nursing Services. In 1914, there were 3,000 nurses, and by 1918, this number was up to 23,000. Nurses who served on the Western Front were quick to improvise when the first deadly gas clouds were released on the 10th of March 1915 in Ypres. The German army discharged 168 tonnes of chlorine gas and inflicted over 5,000 casualties. In the absence of respirators, the nurses drenched their sanitary towels in eau de cologne and held them over their faces and the faces of the wounded soldiers. Nelly began working as a staff nurse in the Whittington Military Hospital in Litchfield, Staffordshire, before being posted to Le Havre in France in May 1917. She worked in one of the Casualty Clearing Stations, or CCS. These stations were usually a safe distance from the front, consistent of large tents, and typical CCS stations would hold about a thousand casualties at any one time. Some operations such as limb amputations were carried out here and some CCSs were specialised units designated for nervous disorders, skin diseases, infectious diseases and certain other types of wounds. They didn't move location very often and the railway lines usually dictated where they would be. The 44th CCS, which Nellie was stationed to in the summer of 1917, was situated in the tiny Belgian village of Brandhope positioned next to a railway and also precariously close to a munitions dump. The CCS specialised in abdominal wounds and on July the 31st, the Battle of Passchendaele began. The 44 CCS heard the steel instruments clattering in the enamel trays as the first artillery barrages began. The air shook and trembled beneath the staff's feet and many of the staff were shaken, but not Nelly. She was, quote, a Yorkshire lass made of sterner staff. While two newly arrived nurses cowered and recoiled every time shells landed in close proximity, Nellie just went about her business, adjusting the metal frame glasses that perpetually slipping down her nose from perspiration. Within hours, the CCS became overwhelmed with casualties, and in a matter of days, the constant shelling, combined with the heaviest rain for 30 years, destroyed the Flemish drainage system and churned the clay soil into a quagmire of thick yellow mud that clogged rifles and immobilised tanks. In early August 1917, she sent a letter home which contained a small silver pendant embossed with a figure of a weeping angel as a gift for her sister Lily. Now, this wasn't an unusual thing for her to do as she spent any free time that she had visiting churches surrounding her. The letter was dated the 28th of July 1917 and it would be the last letter that she ever sent home. Now, the morning of August the 21st, it started normally. Artillery exchanges began around 10 a.m. and two shells just missed the living quarters of the CCS nurses. After a full day of doing her job, she left the ward that night completely exhausted and she hadn't been in a camp bed too long when suddenly there was a blinding flash of a shell which impacted the nurses' quarters. The dust settled and revealed a scene of total carnage. In the far corner of the tent, a young nurse attempted but failed to lift herself from the ground. Her glasses had been blown from her face and a dark red stain was spreading across her chest. Nellie had been hit by shrapnel, which had narrowly missed her heart. Other nurses quickly ran to her aid, but within minutes she'd slipped from consciousness and within 20 minutes she was pronounced dead. She was buried with full military honours at the Lissenthrope Cemetery and she's the only woman among the graves of 10,800 men.
what what do you say to somebody who lost their life trying to help others I think the saddest thing is that the nurses should have been somewhere safe they shouldn't have been having near misses of artillery shells you know they should have been further back further away but because you know they really did depend on the rail lines they had to go where they were I do like that she was buried with military honours yeah I mean obviously I'd rather she come back from war and lived a long happy life but it's nice that even though she was a, oh, I hate it when it's phrased like that but it's nice that even though she was a woman she got that honour they understood her sacrifice was as meaningful as any man's yeah and I mean I guess to her she was doing what she needed to you know her faith would have been extremely important to her and you know she was doing a good thing as far as she could see it's one of the reasons that she you know, went out there in the first place. Yeah. She's just like another one of these amazing women that people don't know about. Okay, so we finished World War One. Where are we off to next? Next up is obviously the Second World War, which was 1940 to 1945. Now, the work done by the nurses in the First World War paved the way for the nurses in the Second World War. During the Second World War, the effectiveness of combat medics and military personnel providing frontline trauma care increased significantly thanks to medical innovations. German biochemist Gerard Jonas Paul Dumack conducted intensive research into antibacterial chemicals, which resulted in the discovery of a new class of drugs which provided the first effective treatments for pneumonia, meningitis and other bacterial diseases. When Dumac published his findings in 1935, doctors discovered that one compound called Ponazil produced many bacterial infections and other researchers developed derivatives based on the Ponazil sulfamide group. The resulting so-called sulfur drugs revolutionised medicine and became popular during the Second World War as they were used to control pneumonia, gonorrhea, meningitis, dysentery and streptococcal infections. American soldiers were taught to sprinkle sulfur powder on an open wound to prevent infection. They were all issued with first aid patch, which contained a package of it and a bandage to dress a wound. In 1921, Scottish bacteriologist Sir Alexander Fleming discovered lysomine, an antibacterial enzyme that attacks many types of bacteria. In 1928, he discovered the mold juice secreted by something called penicillin. The issue was that Fleming had neither the resources nor means to manufacture enough penicillin to be useful in practice, and it was dismissed as being little more than a laboratory curiosity. Ten years would pass before a team of scientists at Oxford University rediscovered his work, and by this time they had more convincing evidence of the wonders of penicillin. At this time, Britain was involved in the Second World War and lacked the funds, so the team asked the US to help. In 1941, John Davenport and Gordon Cragwell, two representatives from the pharmaceutical company Pfizer, attended a symposium where the researchers from Columbia University presented evidence that penicillin could effectively treat infections. The two men recognised the potential and offered Pfizer's assistance. Pfizer produced 90% of the penicillin that landed up with the Allied forces on D-Day in 1944. In fact, World War II marked a watershed in the history of vaccine development as the military, in collaboration with academia and industry, achieved unprecedented levels of innovation in response to war-enhanced disease threats, such as influenza and pneumococcal pneumonia, 
wartime sponsored government programs contributed to the development of new or improved vaccines that tackled 10 of the 28 vaccine preventable diseases identified in the 20th century. So basically Pfizer has been keeping us all safe since the Second World War. It really has. I do love these improvements. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of pushed again by the army and by military needing them. Because obviously you don't want your soldiers falling ill with all this kind of stuff. So literally get them all vaccinated before they go off to war. They, they say um, necessity is the mother invent- of invention, don't they? Yeah, I didn't realise that it was down to Pfizer that we had a no. penicillin as what we did. That was Good old Pfizer. Yeah, that was new Pfizer. Yeah. So were there any British nurses during World War Two? Yes, there were. So British nurses during the Second World War were known as Queen Alexandra's Imperial Military Nursing Services, and each QA had an officer status with equivalent rank, but no actual commission status. And this changed in 1941 when emergency commissions and rank structure were formulated to bring the QAs into line with the rest of the bullet. British military army. Now, not the QAs, black nurses in the WAF, of course, um, the Flying Nightingales. So following the events of the D-Day landings on June 6th, 1944, it was very quickly realised that the medical provisions in Normandy were not enough to keep up with the number of injured men and they needed to be brought back to Britain for treatment. On June the 13th, 1944, three Dakota aircraft took off from RAF Blakenhill Farm in Wiltshire, and they were escorted by a squadron of Spitfires. On these airplanes were WAF nurses who would tend to the needs of those injured men. Once the aircraft had landed in Normandy, supplies were unloaded and then casualties were loaded ready to return. Now these women became the first women to fly into an active war zone whilst on active service for the British government. And due to their success, on the 18th of June, a full-scale evacuation from Normandy began. 11 Dakotas were sent to Normandy, bringing back 183 men to RAF down Apney, and three days later, a further 90 injured men were collected. By the end of June, almost 2,000 stretcher cases and almost 500, quote, walking wounded had been evacuated from Normandy. The WAF nurses offered the wounded life-saving treatments, keeping them alive until they could undergo operations and procedures in Britain. And thanks to the Flying Nightingales, over 100,000 casualties were transported by air safely back to Britain. And it's important to remember that these women were flying into active war zones. They suffered their own casualties. And leading aircraft woman Margaret Walsh and leading aircraft woman Margaret Campbell were killed in in service. LACW Walsh was travelling on a Dakota bound for Brussels and Nivelles. The aircraft was seen to crash into the sea nine miles east-northeast of Calais. Both Margaret and the crew of the aircraft were never found and are remembered on the memorial of Runnymede. LACW Campbell is buried in the Canadian War Cemetery at Calais. The aircraft that she was on um, strayed too close to a German garrison, still holding Dunkirk, and it was shot down and all four of the crew were killed. I am shocked you found a way to work the WAFs in. I will always find a way to work the WAFs in somewhere. I didn't know that it was WAFs that were the first nurses on... To, to, to go into that situation in the mm-hmm. Second World War. Kind of cool. I also love that they're called Flying Nightingales. Yes. It's a good name. It is, but also I'm going to very angrily say that we're kind of whitewashing history again because even the hospitals for COVID are called the Nightingale Hospitals. Yes. But, you know, we're going to scoot on past we're, that. We're, we're going to skip over that because yeah. that could become an angry rant. 
really could. So what are you looking at next? Well, kind of got to look at the Allies and the US nurses. By 1943, the demand for trained nurses transcended previously accepted racial barriers. When the Cadet Nurse Corps was established in 1943, both black and white women, along with some Native American women, entered the nursing profession. Over 115,000 cadets were enrolled in both federal and non-federal hospitals. And when General James Carmagee was appointed Surgeon General on June the 1st, 1939, he and his staff went on to play an integral part of the introduction of new drugs for military use. But there was still racial segregation in the US Armed Forces and the US Army Nurse Corps was initially reluctant to accept black nurses. Those that did join were only allowed to care for black troops in black wards of hosp or hospitals. And in January 1941, the US Army established a quota of 56 black nurses for admissions to the ANC. Through the efforts of the National Association of Coloured Graduate Nurses, the army quota was abolished before the end of the war and black women were able to serve with distinction in various capacities. By late July 1945, there were 512 black women in the ANC, including nine captains and 115 first lieutenants. Of the three groups that served overseas, one was a group of 63 black nurses who worked with the 168th Station Hospital in Manchester, England, caring for wounded German prisoners. I mean, all sounds good, right? Unfortunately, when it comes to something as simple as blood transfusion, there were some issues. So in December of 1941, just days after Pearl Harbor, a Detroit mother named Sylvia Tucker visited her local Red Cross donor center to give blood. She was inspired by the appeals on national radio and wanted to do her part. When she arrived, she was turned away as orders from the national officers prohibited African-American blood donors. Sylvia was so shocked and upset that she wrote to the First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt stating that, quote, we are Americans too. Further insult to injury was that Charles R. Drew was an African-American physician who developed ways to process and store blood plasma in blood banks and conducted pioneering research on typing, preserving and storing blood for transfusion. In 1941, he became the first African-American surgeon selected to serve as an examiner on the American Board of Surgery and was later appointed director of the first American Red Cross Plasma Bank. Late 1941, the Surgeons General of the US Army and Navy took the decision to inform the Red Cross that only blood from white donors would be accepted for military use, despite the fact it being conclusively proven there was no racial differences in blood. In January 1942, the War Department revised its position, agreeing to accept blood from black donors, but a black soldier could receive a blood transfusion from a Caucasian if nothing else was available, but the reverse was not possible. Infuriatingly, the Red Cross not only accepted this, but declared it had no interest in meddling with socio-racial controversies. Drew openly denounced the policy stating the science that there was no difference in the blood and declared it an insult to the patriotic black Americans. He was asked to resign from the Red Cross because of his statement. He returned to Washington DC and became the head of Howard University's Department of Surgery and later chief surgeon at the University Freedmen's Hospital. He died on the 1st of April 1950 from injuries sustained in a car accident. Eight months after his death, the government rescinded its policy on blood segregation. Another notable woman during World War II was Della H. Rainey, a graduate of the Lincoln Hospital School of Nursing in Durham, North Carolina, 
He was the first African-American nurse to be commissioned as a lieutenant in the ANC during the Second World War. As a lieutenant servant at the Tuskegee Army Airfield in Alabama, she was appointed chief nurse in 1942. She later served as chief nurse at Fort Huachuca in Arizona, and she was later promoted to captain in 1949. And after the war, she was assigned to head the nursing staff at the Station Hospital in Camp Beale, California. In 1946, she was promoted to major and served a tour in Japan. Major Rainey retired in 1978. I hate the racial, the segregation, and it just, ugh. Yeah, I got really angry reading that. I had to, like, stop and walk away for a minute. It just, it makes no sense. Especially when the person that developed all the stuff that they needed was black. Yeah. I mean, what's in the teeth? It's just constant, though, isn't it? It's just constant kicking the teeth. Yeah. It's just so stupid that they'd been proven scientifically that it was literally no different. You had no idea what person that blood was coming from. It could have come from anyone. It was just the right type. In America, is it it still that gay men can't donate blood? I I know they lifted it briefly after the Pulse shootings that happened in Orlando, Mm. but I have a feeling in, in some states, gay men can't donate blood. I mean, I've had a blood transfusion. When I had an operation a few years ago, I think I had three or four pints. Yeah. No idea who, you You know, you don't even think about it. No. All you know is it's your blood type. Yeah. And not to look at it because it will make you feel... No, see, that doesn't bother me. Yes, yeah, I, I did not do well with that. But what I'm saying is it shouldn't make a difference. No. I think with that as well, you have to sit back and think how many people actually lost their life because they were just kicking their heels in. Yeah, and how many of them would have said, it doesn't matter to me, just just do it if it's going to save my life. So sadly, the Second World War wasn't the last war we've had to deal with. No. So do you have on like more recent wars? Yeah, so in more recent history, we've had wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan. In the wake of the terror attacks on the 11th of September 2001, US military forces were mobilised and deployed to Afghanistan in Operation Enjoying Freedom in 2001 and Iraq in Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003. These forces had their at their disposal highly trained and specialised army field medical units. The extent of female service members' involvement in Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom in terms of women deployed and scope of their involvement is unprecedented. In 2010, the U.S. Army Special Operations Command created a pilot program to put women on the battlefield in Afghanistan. And in January 2016, the armed services ban on women serving in positions of direct combat was lifted in the U.S. And in the U.K., from 1998 onwards, women were allowed to serve in front line on board ships as pilots of combat aircraft and in combat support roles in the Royal Artillery and Royal Engineers. And from 2016 fight combat roles in infantry and tank units. Almost 90% of combat medics assigned with line units participated in combat patrols and most experienced some type of hostile incoming fire. Roughly a third witnessed someone from their unit or an ally being seriously wounded or killed or enemy troops being seriously wounded or killed. And one of these medics was Sergeant Haley Ridgway. Are you going to tell us a bit more about her? Uh Uh-huh. So she joined the army in 2005 when she was just 50. After completing her basic training, she became a medic and took part in numerous overseas exercises, including Canada, Kenya, 
and saw tours of Iraq and Afghanistan. While on a tour of Afghanistan in 2011, Haley's selfless actions saved the lives of many in her unit. So in April, she was deployed to Afghanistan with C Company, 1st Battalion, the Rifles, where they were stationed at Checkpoint Sharpak in Helmand province. At the time, the area had become one of the most hostile places in the region. On the 12th of August, Haley and her unit were sent out on a routine patrol into the local village of Daktran. Quote, we'd done a few patrols that day, but that was going to be the last one of the day. They were only 150 metres from the front gate when an improvised explosive device or an IED detonated, injuring seven of the 10 patrol, including Haley. And she said it was a 20 kilogram charge, which is huge for a foot patrol that could take out a vehicle. We were all on foot, so it was a massive detonation and it hit everyone pretty much in my patrol. Despite being injured herself, she rushed straight over to the casualties to assess who was injured and needed immediate treatment first. Rifleman Lowe and the platoon commander, Lieutenant Daniel Clack, were the most seriously injured by the blast, along with others in her unit and a sister platoon who rushed back to help. Haley managed to get all of the casualties back within the checkpoint walls, and Lieutenant Clack was severely injured, falling in and out of consciousness as Haley battled to keep him alive until help arrived. About this time, she was unaware of how badly injured she actually was, and she prioritised the other injured men into the helicopter before nominating herself to stay behind with another soldier who also stayed behind. And they waited for five hours before another helicopter arrived to rescue them. It was at that point that she realised quite how injured she was. And she said, when the first helicopter took off, I finally managed to have a look at myself and my leg was blown to bits. I probably should have got on the helicopter, but I didn't feel any pain until that point. When she finally arrived at the medical facility in Camp Bastion, she needed to be rushed into theatre and after a few operations, um, she was sent home for further treatment. At first she had to use a wheelchair and then she relied on crutches. It took about six months for her to be able to walk again. She was mentioned in dispatches for her military bravery in saving the lives of her fellow soldiers and she also won the Sun's Military Life Saver Award in 2012 for her actions. Um, she was presented the award by Dame Helen Moran. Struggling with the mental repercussions of what happened in Afghanistan, she went to go and see a mental health nurse and she said it took me until last year to accept it was okay to receive the award. I think everyone would feel the same. I was only doing my job. And she now works in a non-deployable teaching role, training new on medics. I mean, she just sounds amazing. Yeah. When she got rushed into theatre, um, one of her, one of the people that she was with actually died his injuries were too bad and they didn't tell her for a really long time because they knew that she was going to take it really badly so she was dealing with a lot of guilt I think from that as well survivor's guilt yeah I can't imagine that's an easy thing to live with no not all but this is like I was saying earlier where battlefield medics are very different to civilian ones where you have to prioritize people on who you know needs to be moved first and you have to make those split decisions and then you have to deal with the consequences of that later yeah I, I understand I mean it makes sense but it still must be awful yeah. for the people that have to make that decision I can't because, imagine being that person because nine times out of ten you know and you've come through training and you've gone through 
really harrowing stressful situations with the people who you have to decide whether you're gonna mm-hmm. leave them to die or you know and it's a failing and I don't think it's just a UK failing because I don't think America's much better but we don't tend to take care of our veterans that well and we really should yeah so the experiences of the first world war and the second world war provided significant advances in battlefield medicine in the first world war approximately four in every 100 wounded who received treatment would be expected to live. And by the Second World War, that rose to about 50 in 100. Today, combat medics are expected to fill fill a bipartisan role. And I mean, they're expected to be trained soldiers and fight alongside their brothers and sisters in arms, but they're also tasked with preserving life on and off the battlefield. So this is the last after dark of 2021. After Christmas, we're going to be making some changes about what content goes where. So stay tuned for information on that. As always, we can only put out so much content with the support of our patrons. And if you would like to or are able, our patron levels start at just £1 a month. And depending on the level you select, you'll get different benefits. In December, you won't be hearing very much from us. We will be doing a Christmas Tangent podcast. But other than that, it's Be Our Guest Month. So we have three guest bloggers and two guest podcasts that we're really excited to share with you all. And there'll be lots more about those on our social media in the coming days. So until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.